Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus? Book of Exodus, and I'm going to begin reading at the end of Exodus chapter 2 and through chapter 3, verse 14. Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, and through chapter 3, verse 14. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is as it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Last week, I I preached a sermon to begin our year Um, that reminded us that in the next year, all of us are going to experience grief and suffering in one way or another. And this wasn't meant to be some sort of a prediction. It was meant to be just stated as as a fact. 
Grief and suffering are a part of all of our lives, and in any given year, all of us will experience some taste of it. Of course, some of us will experience it more deeply and painfully than others, but all of us will encounter it in some way, and we will have to go through it. As as we begin today, I want to be a bit more specific and to say that the forecast for 2024 does not look good for our country. It doesn't take a prophet to look at the circumstances and to be concerned. It doesn't take someone with the disposition of Eeyore to be pessimistic about the year ahead. It's a national election year, which always comes with some stress and anxiety in the most normal of circumstances. And this year, the circumstances are not normal. And four years ago, it was revealed to us very clearly that the feelings of injustice and grievance and anger and mistrust in our country, those feelings run very wide and very deep. And the flames of those feelings were fanned by the media and by our country's leadership and have continued to be fanned over the last four years. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not generally a pessimistic person, but our experience over the last four years has shown what we are capable of as a country. And the inevitable road in front of us makes it clear that anger and violence and civil unrest will be very much a reality across our country in the next year in ways that I believe will be even worse than we saw in 2020 and in 2021. The next year is going to be noisy. There are going to be a lot of voices clamoring for our attention, clamoring to make us afraid, We're going to feel a lot of pressure to be afraid, pressure to be angry, pressure to be suspicious of our neighbors, to fight with our brothers and sisters who we disagree with. We're going to be tempted to believe that our enemy is flesh and blood, the candidate for president we don't like, or the coworker who we disagree with. We're going to be tempted to despair when we see anger turn into violence. So I've been thinking and praying a lot about this and considering what would be helpful for us. What would be a way to orient us as a church in this new year to prepare ourselves spiritually and emotionally for the challenge that's ahead. And over the next few months, as we begin this year, we are going to orient ourselves here on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. We're going to orient ourselves to God and to his character. Very simply, and I hope profoundly for us and deeply, we're going to be looking at who God is, about who Jesus is, and to orient our attention, our eyes, our heart, our mind on him and his character first and last and always. If we're going to walk through this next year faithfully without allowing the winds and the waves and the cultural pressures around us, the political disruption to knock us off course, if we are going to be faithful, we must orient our attention to God. To know who he is and to recognize how he is at work in our lives, in our church, and in our country. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at the story in the Bible where God tells Moses his name. Where God tells Moses that his name is I Am. And then beginning next week, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John and to listen to how Jesus describes himself and how Jesus identifies himself with the I am of Exodus. So with all of that in mind, let's pray as we turn to listen to God's word. Father, we do believe that we live in a world that is unpredictable and outside of our control and is often filled with grief and suffering. And we also know and believe here that you are the I am, that nothing is unpredictable to you, that nothing is outside of your control. And so, Lord, today I pray that we would hear that and know that. Amen. So before we get into the text of Exodus chapter 3 today, I want to talk a little bit about our understanding of the word God that we read in the Bible. I'm going to do a bit of a teaching here at the beginning to, I hope, help you read your Bibles better, but also I think is going to make an important point for us in this story as we look at Exodus chapter 3. In the English language, we have this word, God. And the word God in English is the title that we give to the highest being. And there are many people out there who say, I believe in God. But that actually doesn't tell us a whole lot. In order to understand what someone means when they say, I believe in God, it requires some more questions. The word God is kind of like a title like dad. Okay, there are many dads in the room today, but we aren't all the same, right? The same way with the word God. I believe in God. That statement, if we're going to understand what a person means by that, we would need to ask some other questions in order to fully understand them. Maybe when they imagine God, they imagine an old man with a big beard who lives up in the clouds. Or maybe they believe in Allah, the God that the Muslims worship or one of the gods of the Hindus, or maybe they do believe in the God of the Bible, the one who's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In order to understand what somebody means by God, we need to get more specific. In the ancient Hebrew language, there is a similar dynamic with their word, their common word for God. In the Hebrew, there is a word that is Elohim, Elohim. And in the Bible, the word Elohim is often translated in English as God. And this word Elohim often does refer to Israel's God, but there are also other entities, heavenly beings that are also referred to as Elohim. Elohim refers to heavenly, powerful, spiritual beings, gods, and sometimes the angels. And in Hebrew, these heavenly beings are called Elohim. So when God, the one true God, is referred to in the Hebrew Bible, he's usually referred to in one of three ways. First is this word Elohim. Sometimes when the Hebrew writers write about God, even though they may use the word Elohim to describe other heavenly beings, sometimes they simply use the word Elohim because they know that they're listeners are talking about the same God that they're talking about. 
So let me, let me give you an example. Today, if I call my brother Adam and I say to him, hey, Adam, I talked to dad on the phone today, he would know who I was talking about, right? He wouldn't be like, well, which billion dad do you mean today? You know, which of the billions of dads in the world do you mean? No, we only share one dad. And so when I say to my brother, hey, Adam, I talked to dad on the phone today, he knows which dad I'm referring to. So sometimes the biblical writers, when they're talking about Israel's God, they simply use the word Elohim. So in the English Bible, if you see the word God, it is most likely a translation of the word Elohim. Then the biblical writers also use another word to refer to God, and that that is the word Adonai. And the word Adonai means Lord. And this word, like God, is also a title. There are many different people and many different entities in the Bible that are referred to as Adonai. But when talking about God, sometimes the biblical writers refer to him simply as Adonai, and they know what their they knew what their listeners knew that they were referring to God. And sometimes they will add the two words together, Adonai Elohim. Adonai Elohim means Lord God. So in your Bibles, if you ever see the phrase Lord God spelled out, and the words Lord are capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, that is the word Adonai. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that is the word Adonai, and very often God is referred to as the Lord God or Adonai Elohim. But then there is another word for God that is used as well, and that is the personal name of the God of Israel that he gave to Moses in the story that we just read. It's the personal name. It's four Hebrew consonants, Yod, He, Wa, and He, Yahweh. In the Hebrew Bible, God is sometimes called Yahweh. And in our English Bibles, it has become the practice to translate the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And so in your Bibles, if you see those four letters capitalized, that is the Hebrew word for the divine name, the personal name of God, Yahweh. So all of that was for free. It doesn't have anything to do, no, has some things to do with this sermon this morning. I, I wanted to tell you that hopefully so that you can read your Bibles better and to understand these different words for God that the Hebrews use. But also, I think it makes an important point for us. All of us carry different views about God. God is a title, and it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. So who do we mean here at Broadway Christian Church when we refer to God? Who do you mean when, we, when you refer to God? And in the coming year, in 2024, I want us to fix our eyes on what the scriptures say about who God is. And not just any God, but the one Lord God, Adonai Elohim. And not just any Lord God, but the one true God who has given us his name, Yahweh, I am. And that great I am has made himself known to us 
in Jesus of Nazareth. So this morning, our scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 3. And just want to make a long story short for those of you who maybe not know this entire story. In chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and things are going from bad to worse for them. Pharaoh is oppressing them by making them their work impossible. And not only that, but he begins to feel threatened by all of these Israelites that are in Egypt. And so he attempts genocide by killing all of the young male children of Israel. And so at the end of chapter 2, we read that God has heard the cries of the Israelites and that he is concerned for them. That's the end of chapter 2. Beginning of chapter 3, it cuts the scene, and 40 years pass from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. And in the next scene, we find Moses. And we know from the previous chapter that Moses is a man who is living in hiding. In the previous chapter, Moses had witnessed an an Egyptian slave driver whipping one of his fellow Israelites. Moses gets angry. He kills the slave driver, buries him in the sand, and then he gets nervous that Pharaoh is going to find out and kill him. And so he flees to Midian where he finds a wife and he settles down with with a wife and with children, and 40 years pass. 40 years. That's a long time, people. 40 years. And he's now probably close to 80 years old, and he's out in the wilderness serving as a shepherd for his father-in-law. Moses, for 40 years, is out in the wilderness, out in the desert, and the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are still stuck in Egypt, back in slavery. And one day, Moses is minding his business out in the desert, out doing what he has done for 40 years. Thousands and thousands and thousands of days he has done this work. And on this particular day where he is tending his sheep, he encounters God. This is a key moment in the story of the whole Bible where God reveals to Moses and to his people and now to us quite a lot about his character, about who he is and about how he relates to us, about what kind of God he is. The Israelites are enduring a whole lot of trouble and God is about to show up in a unique way to save them. He is about to reveal who he is for Israel through his saving work. So so today I want to ask the question, who is it that God encounters in this story? Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The first thing that we learn about God in the story is that Moses encounters a God who is holy. Moses, you are in the presence of God. Take off your shoes. My presence, Moses, makes this space holy because I am holy. The word holy is a bit confused in our minds. Sometimes we think of holy as someone who's like a little bit morally uptight, holier than thou, but that's not what you should think of when you think of the word holy. Think a good word for us maybe is, is hallowed. 
sacred, special. The word holy means to be set apart, to be unique, to be different. This God is holy, completely different from all other gods. This Elohim is different from all of the other Elohim. So Moses, be careful. Be careful. The place where you are standing here is holy ground because you are in the presence of a holy God who is now revealing himself to you. Second, we see that God is one who sees and hears and rescues. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God hears, he sees, he's concerned, and he rescues. The God who is holy and set apart, the God who is far above all things, holy and perfect, that God is not indifferent to the sufferings of his people. This is a God who sees and hears and is grieved and moved by the suffering of people. God says that he has heard the cries of the people, he has seen their suffering, and he is going to come down to rescue them. This is actually a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures of the way that God acts, that he sees, he hears, he is moved with concern, and he comes down to rescue or to save or to heal or to bring his justice or whatever. He sees, he hears, he has concern, and he comes down to act. We have a God who sees, who hears, who is concerned, and who rescues. Verses 9 through 10, we also see that he is the God who is with us. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. This is a bit of the humorous part of the story for me. So just imagine Moses for a bit. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years, maybe praying, maybe hoping that God would do something about the slavery of his fellow Israelites. And here God shows up and he tells Moses, Moses, I am going to come down and to rescue my people. And I imagine Moses is thinking, great, what's taking you so long? I wish you would have come sooner. It's been 40 years. I've been waiting for this to happen. But then in verse 10, Moses, God says to Moses, you go down. Moses, I thought you were coming down. Why do you want me to go down? God says he is coming down, but he says, Moses, you go down and do it. And Moses immediately objects. I thought you were the one that was going to do this. This is my favorite part of the story. Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God has no words to say about who Moses is. His words are simply this, I will be with you. God could have given him all of the reasons that I as a preacher and other preachers often give about why Moses was the right man for the job. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. He understood Egyptian culture. He probably had some leadership qualities. He was the perfect person for the job. He was qualified, but that's not what God says at all. Moses, to your question, who am I? My response to you is simply, I will be with you. 
It doesn't matter whether Moses is qualified or not. What matters most is that God is with him, that God has sent him, that God has seen, that he has heard the cries of his people, that he has compassion on his people, and God is now planning to do a good work. And Moses, that's all that matters. He is the God who is with us. And the fourth thing that we hear about this God that Moses encounters is that he is the I am verses 13 and 14. Moses, continuing to try to negotiate with God here, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. There is so much richness and depth in these two verses. Theologians and biblical scholars and philosophers have spent a lot of time reflecting on these verses. The meaning and significance of these two verses for who God is and how God relates to us, how God relates to his world. Reflection on these two verses is literally inexhaustible. And at the same time, it's very simple. The name that God gives to himself is very, very simple. I am. There actually is no simpler sentence in English than I am. Simple subject, simple verb, I am. Moses, I am. I am the one who eternally and forever existed and exists and will exist. God's name, I am, means that existence, anything that does exist, comes from the I am. I am the one in whom all things exist and in whom all things hold together. I am the source and the sustainer of everything. When God says to Moses that his name is I am, he is saying that he is the only being that exists who is not dependent or contingent on any other thing or any other person. He is the source. He is the source of all things, of life, of light, of all matter. All other things are dependent and contingent on his being to have their own being. And not only is he the source of all things, but he is the unchangeable source of all things. The other way that the name of God can be translated is not simply I am, that's present tense for us, but also I will be who I will be. God, the one who is outside of time, is always I am. But from our perspective, time Passes and times change and different circumstances come our way. Different trials come up. We are moving along the course of time, moment by moment and day by day. And so the I am is also the I will be to whatever circumstance comes next. I will be who I am now. I will be who I am then. Wherever you go, however time passes, whatever circumstances arise, the I am will be who the I am always is. And so what I want us to hear today is that all of these characteristics that we have heard today about who God is for Moses is also true today for you and for me. 
The same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the same God who rescued Israel out of slavery at the hands of Pharaoh, this is the same God that walks with us through our trials today. He is the same God who sees and hears and has concern and comes down to us. God is holy and set apart. He is unique. He is not only Elohim. He is Adonai Elohim, the Lord God. He is not only Elohim. He is Yahweh Elohim. God is holy. He is not made in our image. We are made in his. God does not bend to our will and desires. We are called to bend our will and desires to his. God is holy. He's not useful. Be suspicion of any politician or religious leader who seeks to make God useful for their own purposes. He's holy. He's not useful. He is not an idol that needs us. We are creatures that need him. And he is also the God who sees and hears and who comes down and rescues. This God who is holy and perfect is not at all indifferent to your suffering and trials. He sees you and he hears you when you cry out to him. He is moved, he is concerned by your pain, and he has a plan and a purpose for you as you walk through it. And this God who rescued Egypt from slave, or, uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he also wants to set you from whatever holds you back, whatever you are enslaved to. So many of us are enslaved to sin, enslaved to our own pleasures, enslaved to our own comfort. And the Lord sees that, and he is concerned about it, and he wants to come down and rescue you from those things. You may have to go through a desert for 40 years to learn all of the things that he has for you as he rescues you from that. But if you follow him, if you remember that he is with you, surrender yourself to him. He does want to rescue you from those things that keep you in bondage to sin. He wants to set you free from your slavery. And this God, he is with us. He says to you and to me, just like he said to Moses, I am with you. Lord, who am I that I should be called to go to Peru and to do this thing? I am with you, Nick. Lord, who am I that I should have to endure this trial? I am with you. Lord, who am I that I should have to go through this pain? Lord, who am I that I should say yes to this thing that I believe you're calling me to do? God's answer to Moses is his answer to us. I will be with you. He says that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who you are. What matters is who I am. What matters is my character, my power, and my ability that goes with you. God promises Moses that when he goes into Egypt, that he will be with him. And the great gift of Jesus is that we can know that he is and always will be with us. Emmanuel for us. That is the name that Jesus receives. Emmanuel, God with us. So I want to finish today as we, again, consider 2024 and all that's coming in light of what we've heard today about his character. I want to finish with one very simple and practical suggestion. 
It's very simple, but after I tell you what it is, you're going to know how difficult it is to do because you've tried before and you found it hard. As we think about whatever grief or disappointment or trial that we're anticipating in 2024, as we think specifically about unrest that we're likely to see in our country in the coming year, I want to encourage you to take intentional time to seek out God in silence. It's going to be a noisy year. And Moses was far away from home, out in the wilderness, away from all of the noise, and God showed up in a burning bush. Our lives are very noisy. Every day, moment by moment, our lives are filled with all sorts of distractions. And Exodus has this really interesting phrase in Exodus chapter 3 about how God, how it describes how God responds to Moses' response. He says this, Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. And it says in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Literally, it's when the Lord saw that Moses saw, God spoke. When the Lord knows it, noticed that Moses began to notice, that's when God spoke. And the Lord may be waiting for you to simply turn and to be quiet. To pay attention to where he is and to what he is doing. To put aside noise and distractions. To be quiet long enough to hear from him. Elizabeth Barrett's famous poem is really helpful here. She says this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit and pluck blackberries. There is a call and invitation in this story to be quiet. When the Lord saw that Moses turned toward the bush and saw, that's when God spoke. That's when Moses learned that God is a God who hears and sees and who comes down to rescue. That's when Moses learned that God was calling him to something that he could never have expected and that God promised to be with him in it. It was in the silence and in the wilderness away from the noise where Moses learned God's name. So Lord, we ask that in the noise of our life this week and in the noise of our life in the coming year, Lord, that we would know you as the I am, the Holy One, the one who sees and who hears and is concerned and who comes to rescue, that we would know you as the God who is with us, that we would know you as the I am, the one who is and who was and forever will be. So Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability and the courage and the strength to be quiet and to be looking for you. And Lord, that when we notice that you would speak to us, reveal yourself to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.